I think one of the exciting aspects of going through the mitzvos in the Torah is that sometimes you, you know, you learn more about a mitzvah that you're more familiar about. Like every Jew knows about a matzah, has heard about matzahs and things like that and Pesach and celebrating the holidays. But there's some mitzvahs that are more obscure and more, uh, more unknown, I would say, to the greater population, myself included. And that's the kind of mitzvah that we're going to talk about today. In chapter 13 of the book of Exodus, we are about to have the actual Exodus from Egypt. And of course, that is culminated by the death of the firstborn of the Egyptians. So every firstborn Egyptian male, both human and animal, dies at the stroke of midnight, ushering in the or precipitating the Exodus. And right when that's all happening, the verse tells us, this is 13.2 of Exodus, which means, uh, the Almighty instructs, to sanctify or separate for me all firstborn, the opening of the, of the womb amongst the Jewish people, with man and with animal, it, it is for God. So there's this idea, a general idea, that all firstborn are holy and they belong to God. And in fact, in uh, later on in the Torah, the the role of the priesthood is transferred from the 22,000 or so firstborns, firstborn males that are just amongst the Jewish people, to the Kohanim, to the priests. And in a, an alternative universe, if there wasn't the sin of the golden calf, then we wouldn't have priests as the clergymen of the Jewish people. We'd have the firstborn because the firstborn are more holy they are more distinct and they're more designated for God. And in fact, with the death of the firstborn, my grandfather of blessed memory had an amazing insight because the Torah kind of puts a uh, distinction between the firstborn of the Jews and the firstborn of the Egyptians. And it says, and I think I might say it more than once, that the Almighty killed the firstborn of the Egyptian but spared, saved, the firstborn of the Jews, which doesn't really make a lot of sense because if, the, if this is a targeted strike, all the firstborn of the Egyptians are being attacked by the Almighty, well, he wasn't attacking the firstborn of the Jews. So why would it say that the Almighty attacked and killed the firstborn of the Egyptians but spared, but saved the firstborn of the Jews? They weren't under attack at all. So the answer my grandfather says, very deep idea, is that there was a certain revelation that happened at the night of the Exodus at the stroke of midnight. That was, so to speak, God pulling off a layer where behind where he was concealed. And in order to pick up on that, in order for for to have that register, you have to be spiritually sensitive. And therefore, firstborns who were spiritually sensitive or who are innately spiritually sensitive, they perceived it. And the Egyptians, well, they weren't able to handle it, and they died. And really, the Jewish firstborn were also supposed to die because they also couldn't handle it. But the Almighty spared them, and therefore they survived. And by extension, my grandfather added that every Pesach night, the night of the Seder, that same revelation actually appears, and we're trying to relive, we're trying to grasp onto that spiritual 
infusion of power that's present in the world like it was on the night of the Exodus. There's a certain revelation, a certain exposure of godly presence that reappears in the world uh, on Pesach on the anniversary of that original revelation. So this uniqueness about firstborn is manifested right away with this instruction to designate, to separate the firstborn, both human and animal. And there's going to be three different classes of firstborns with respect to the mitzvahs of the Torah that are ongoing, not just what happened in Egypt, but the ones that are going today. Number one, there's the firstborn of a of, of humans. And that is going to be a male who was born first to his mother, not first, not to the father. So if the father is his first child, but the mother's second child in a second marriage or whatever, that wouldn't qualify. And in essence, the basic outline of that mitzvah, we're not going to be talking about that mitzvah today at length, but the basic outline is that that child technically belongs to the coin. And you have to kind of buy him back. Once the child is 30 days old, you give the coin five silver coins, and you buy back the child, and now the child's yours, so to speak. That's the basic outline of it. And the idea is the Cohen's like a proxy for God. He's like the, he's like the clergyman, and therefore it really belongs to God, but in practical terms, belongs to the Cohen. Really, really does belong to the Cohen. I've, I've always said, you know, there's many, many exceptions for who, who doesn't apply. Because if you're a Cohen yourself, or you're a Levite yourself, or your wife's a Cohen, or your wife's a Levite, then you don't qualify. Uh, and all kind of the child is born in any unusual way, in any, uh, for example, for a C-section or things like that, that wouldn't qualify. So I've always said, you know, my, my wife is from a Levite family. And therefore, my oldest son, Akiva, he checked every other box, but we were exempt because my my wife's family is from, is from a Levite family. And therefore, not, we, we don't qualify for this particular mitzvah. But I've always said is that I don't know if I would have bought him back. <laughs> because he was so colicky. After 30 days, I would I might have told the Cohen, you know what? <laughs> Your problem, not mine. That's it's a joke. It's a joke, but uh, yes. Um, uh, so that that was the joke, but uh, that's the general outline of of the Bechor Adam, the firstborn of a human. I want to talk today about the firstborn of the animals, and that falls into two categories. Number one. The firstborn male animal born, born from a kosher animal, exclusively a kosher animal. This, this, so you have a cow or you have a goat or you have a sheep or a ram. These are kosher animals, livestock and sheep that are the firstborn from the mother. It goes to the Kohen. Regardless of whether that animal is blemished or unblemished. And this is a big deal because there's different laws if the animal's blemished or the animal's not blemished. What does it mean blemished? It means they have any one of many, many, many different bodily malfunctions that would render it unusable for the temple. So if it has a little nick in its eye or a little cleft lip or something like that, there's all kinds of very complex laws of how do you take a unblemished animal and render it blemished. Because it has to be blemished in a permanent way, not a temporary way. And a lot of the book of the Talmud that talks about the firstborn, it talks about the firstborn of humans and of animals. But a lot of it's dedicated to how to, how to differentiate between a what's called a mum kavua and a mum over, which means a, a, a permanent blemish 
versus a temporary or passing blemish. So let's say you have a um, unblemished firstborn animal. You could give it to the Kohen. If it is unblemished, the Kohen brings it as a sacrifice and eats the meat. If it is blemished, then the Kohen could do with it whatever he wants. And it's a bit different because if you bring it as a sacrifice, then it can only be consumed by a Kohen. So either this Kohen, you give it to other Kohens as well. But it's limited who could consume it. Whereas if there's any blemish, so for example, there's a small nick in the ear of the animal, it's still kosher, but it's not kosher to be brought as a sacrifice, then it becomes the property of the coin. He could do with it whatever he wants. He could sell it to anyone. It's not limited to the coin. He could sell it to even a non-Jew. It's it's his. It's his for every practical purpose, and he does not need to offer as a sacrifice. And this shows us a little bit of the incentive for the coin to find a blemish. Because it's much more valuable for him to have a blemished animal because now it's really his to do with it whatever he wants. Whereas if it's unblemished, he has to only bring it as a sacrifice and only he could eat it and therefore it's less valuable for him. That's number one. Number two, once the temple is destroyed, a lot of these laws still apply. However, it cannot be offered as a sacrifice because there is no altar. And therefore, what to do nowadays, so to speak, certainly in the land of Israel, where these laws still apply in full force, you have the firstborn, you give it to the Kohen, the Kohen cannot offer as a sacrifice, his only hope is that something bad happens to the animal. Not bad enough that will render it unkosher, but bad enough that will render it blemished, now it's blemished, and now he can do with it whatever he wants. Whereas if it was unblemished, he kind of, he, he has to just wait for, for something bad to happen to the animal to make it usable, because now it's not usable on the, uh, in the temple. Now this, law of giving the firstborn of the kosher animal to the Kohen, remember it's only a male, that only applies to kosher animals. However, there is one exception. There's one non-kosher animal that you have to give to the Kohen too, but not really, you don't really give it to the Kohen, you technically give it to the Kohen, then you have to buy it back. And that is the animal that everyone laughs at when I pronounce the word, because I pronounce it with a New York accent. But that is the donkey. The donkey belongs to the Kohen. However, the Kohen doesn't get to keep that animal. The owner of the donkey buys back or redeems his donkey by giving the Kohen a sheep instead. And in fact, you could go online today and you can watch. You put in Pidyon Petar Hamar, which is the Hebrew word for this mitzvah. And you'll see they have these elaborate ceremonies, a small little donkey all dressed up nice for the mitzvah in a pen with a small little sheep also dressed up for the occasion. They have like, have like thousands of people come and they bring the Kohen because it's, it's actually it turns out it's very unusual in the modern economy for Jews to own donkeys. They own all kinds of other stuff. Maybe they have pets and the like, but they don't really have donkeys. It's more like, um, a more primitive animal, I think. Uh, it's not really used as much. You know, you have, you have Jews that'll have horses and maybe they'll, uh, have roosters or chickens to give them. They'll have all kinds, but it's very unusual to find, uh, a, a donkey. And, and when you do, you have this interesting mitzvah. You have to buy back the donkey in exchange for giving the Kohen a, uh, a sheep. Now, if the if the Jew refuses to partake in this mitzvah, if the Jew refuses to buy back his donkey from the Kohen for a sheep, then he has to kill the donkey. 
So it's kind of an unusual thing where he cannot possibly utilize his animal, the donkey, unless he buys it back either with a set, with a sheep, uh, or with the monetary equivalent of that. I'd imagine it's never happened because the value of a donkey exceeds the value of a sheep. And therefore, it doesn't make any sense for someone to do that. Uh, why would they possibly want to do that, especially when you could just buy it back with the, with the financial value of, 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 of a sheep? But the point is, Rashi tells us that it's, he's locked out. He cannot possibly utilize his animal, his donkey, unless he recompenses the, the, the Kohen either with a sheep or with the monetary equivalent. So today I want to cover five mitzvos that relate to uh, the firstborn of the animals. You have three of them with the kosher animals and two with the donkey. The three with the kosher animals are, number one, to separate the firstborns of all humans and animals as general rule, general mitzvah. Number two is that when the animal, the kosher animal, is unblemished, the, cone, the high priest has to eat it in Jerusalem and cannot eat it outside of Jerusalem. Number three, that you cannot buy it back. So if I have my cow, my cow gives the first firstborn, I give it to the Kohen, I cannot buy it back. It belongs to the Kohen and there's no way for me to redeem it. And then there's the two laws related to the donkey. Number one, that I have to give my donkey and then buy it back. It technically belongs to the Kohen, you got to buy it back. And if I don't, then I have to kill the donkey uh, because I cannot u- utilize it unless I pay for it. Why is the donkey uh, separated? So there's a few reasons given. Uh, the Talmud says that when the Jewish people were leaving Egypt, they were taking with them the they had amassed a lot of great wealth from their Egyptian neighbors. What were they using to transport the booty out of Egypt? They were using donkeys. Thus, the donkeys participated in the miracle, and therefore they kind of got some residual holiness because they were part of this story as well and therefore forever they have this holiness assigned to them at birth in this if the circumstances warrant and therefore they have a certain mitzvah given to them in appreciation and acknowledgement of their holiness that they had at the exodus so let's dig in a little bit more into these into these mitzvahs so the first one is to sanctify the firstborn of the humans and of animals and this is a male, uh, both humans and animals. They are belong to God, so to speak. And in fact, there is a mitzvah for the owners to announce, behold, this is holy, which is to kind of sanctify the animal. Animals born, cow is baby, baby boy. You announce, behold, this is holy for God. It goes to the Kohen and the Kohen brings it as a sacrifice. Uh, however, it doesn't happen right away. You don't give it to the Kohen, even though the holiness, so to speak, the sanctity applies immediately, but you don't actually deliver it to the Kohen until later. If it's a small animal, you keep it for 30 days. If it's a larger animal, you keep it for 50 days. The Kohen has up to a year to sacrifice it to fulfill his obligation. Of course, today, outside of the land of Israel or outside of the temple, there's a whole discussion what to do with these animals because you can't offer them as a sacrifice. And the consensus is you wait for it to have a mum, wait for it to have a blemish, and then it belongs to the Kohen to do with it, with it whatever he wants. Now, very interesting rationale is offered for this mitzvah. I want to read it to you um, word by word here. The rationale that he, that the Sefer HaChinuch, again, the book that we're using to, to overview of the, of the mitzvahs, the rationale is that the Almighty wants to give us a merit to do a mitzvah with the first of our fruits. 
Why? So that we should know that everything ultimately belongs to God. And all we get in the world is what the Almighty allocates for us in his kindness. And we'll understand that message, the very important message, that really the world belongs to God. And he is doling out to us and his benevolence will we'll, we'll get that when we experience after a person is working so hard and investing so much in the world, you, you work so hard and finally what happens? Your cow that you've been nurturing has a baby. And the first baby is so beloved, it's as beloved to you as the pupil of your eye. This is his words, not mine. And right away, we, when you feel like this is yours and you love this so much, you right away give it to the Almighty and you divest it from your domain and you give it into the domain of God. I was thinking as an example, you know, a restaurant, like you work so hard, you get a restaurant, you get the health department, you have a facility, right? You make a menu, you set up the chairs, and then finally you earn that first dollar, right? You, you put a plaster on the wall. You frame it like, wow, this is it. So many months I worked on it and finally – it paid off. I have this $1 and let me hang it up. I'm not even going to cash it. That's what it is. It's like you work so hard on tending to your flock, tending to your animals, finally produces, you you love this, you give it straight to God. And that way you learn the lesson that really everyone wants to God and whatever he gives you is from his love that he has for you and his kindness. And in fact, this point is, is reinforced when you have to actually tend to the animal for a couple of Weeks, you, you kind of develop a certain bond, and then when it's really difficult, you're, you kind of attach yourself to this animal, then you give it away and you achieve the full maximum potential of this mitzvah, what it's supposed to evoke within you. And then he gives a small survey of the various different laws that come up in the Talmudic discussion of this mitzvah. So where do you ser- sacrifice it? How do you eat it? What's the time frame? So again, if it's an unblemished animal – there's a certain time frame within which you could consume it. Like every sacrifice, you know, we talked about the Pesach sacrifice. You have that night. That's it. Then if it's, if it's around the next day, you gotta burn it. You, here, there's a little bit of a longer time frame for you to eat it, but every sacrifice has its own time frame. And those, of course, are discussed in the Talmud. In addition, the Talmud has a very lengthy narrative regarding which blemishes disqualify the animal, much to the light, of course, of the Kohen, but which blemishes disqualify it from being a sacrifice, which is a permanent blemish, which is a transient passing blemish, the differences between the two, who is trusted to make that, to make the diagnoses, or what if someone deliberately sabotages, so the Kohen, the enterprising Kohen that we talked about earlier, he says, you know what, I'm going to stick my foot out and trip it. And maybe it'll break his leg. Or I'm going, I'm going to deliberately cause it to have a blemish and I'll be able to reap the value. Well, then, uh, there's, uh, safety stopgap or ordinances to prevent that from happening because then you might have, might lose it all. The coin might lose it all because if he deliberately inflicted the blemish, then that blemish would not allow him to keep the animal. He would lose the animal. Uh, in addition, what if, the animals owned by partners, either two Jewish partners, one Jewish partner, one non-Jewish partner, because the, the, the mitzvah only applies in the Jew. The Jew has to donate his firstborn, but not the non-Jew. Well, what if it's a partnership? That might be a nice little loophole 
for someone to avoid having to donate the animal because, well, it's not fully mine. It's owned – a certain percentage of it is owned by the non-Jew. And the Talmud even discusses, you know, some very unusual cases where you don't buy the animal. You buy the – you buy just the fetus. You know, we know the animal's pregnant and the Jew buys the fetus from the non-Jew. But he doesn't buy the actual animal. He just buys whatever potential is within the animal. Well, okay, the animal's born firstborn. You own, you don't own the mother. You own the baby. Do you have to give that animal? You have to get the animal or not? Interesting question discussed in the Talmud. If you if you're not sure if it was a firstborn or not, again, like you go, you come to the backyard, you see twins, etc. All those questions discussed in the Talmud. There's an interesting teaching in the Book of Sanhedrin uh, about this or tangentially about this. It says that Rav Rav. His, um, he's one of, he's the, the greatest sage of the beginning of, of the third century of the common era. He's like kind of at that, that transition stage from the authors of the Mishnah to the authors of the Talmud. And he's bridging that gap and he travels from Israel where the sages are, are coalesced to Babylon. And he's one of the founders of the great institutions of Torah in Babylon. So the Talmud tells, that when he is about to depart from Israel, he goes to Rabbi Judah the prince, who is the elder sage, of course, the architect of the Tal- of the Mishnah, and he wants to get smicha. He wants to get ordination. And he says, okay, well, will he be allowed to rule in these matters of laws? Yes, says uh, Rabbi Judah the Prince. Will he be allowed to rule in these set of laws? Yes. He's going through all the laws and he's getting approval from the greatest sage of, of the time that he should be allowed to have smicha. Finally, he asks, okay, will he be allowed, yatir bechoros, will, be, will he be allowed to permit, to unlock firstborns by being able to identify and diagnose blemishes? Al yatir. Rabbi Judah Prince says, no, sorry, this part, I'm not giving him ordination. He is not, uh, he is not eligible to rule in that matter. And of course, the Talmud is like, why, why not? Rav, Rav is one of the great rabbis, one of the great sages. Why should he be disqualified in this law? And the Talmud offers two answers. Either because there was another sage who was in charge of doing that and he didn't want to trample on his feet. Or alternatively, and this is very interesting, this is the Talmud in the book of Sanhedrin, page 5b. It says something very interesting. The Talmud is like, well, why not? Maybe you think he's not an expert. No. It says that Rav spent 18 months on a farm as an apprentice to to study the animals and to know exactly which blemishes are permanent and which blemishes are transient, are passing. And therefore, he was the world's greatest expert. And yet, he was disqualified from ruling on this matter. Says the Talmud, well, that in fact was precisely the reason why he was disqualified. He was such a world-class expert, his depth of understanding was so unfathomable that he may rule something based upon kind of his level and people might say, oh, he's ruling on it and they won't be able to understand the profundity of his reasoning and therefore they'll come to learn the wrong lesson, which is kind of an ironic thing that the Talmud says that sometimes people who are such great experts, they're too good at it. They're too good at their craft and therefore they're too advanced and therefore the law does not follow them because people who try to mimic them won't be able to accurately understand what their reasoning, what their rationale is. Kind of an interesting thing. 
Okay, so just to round off these mitzvos, we have the prohibition of eating it outside of Jerusalem. So again, the Kohen, if the animal is unblemished, he eats it as a sacrifice in Jerusalem and it's only consumable by the Kohen and his family or by other Kohens, but not by regular regular non-Kohanim. He is not allowed to redeem it, means once the animal is born, it belongs to the Kohen, he may, des- may be able to decide which one he wants to give it to, but he doesn't have free reign to just uh, buy it back. He will never be able to own that animal. And finally, we have the two laws that apply to the to the donkey. A, you have a, you have a firstborn donkey, you give it to the Kohen, but the Kohen does not get to keep it. You buy it back either with a sheep or with the value of a sheep. Uh, or if you do not want to do that for whatever reason, you don't want to have the coin to have any value. Uh, you want to uh, kind of, as they say in the Talmud, Thomas Nafshim You want to just die with the Philistines, which is a reference, of course, to Samson, which is self-destructive. If you want to be self-destructive, then you could just kill the donkey and then no one benefits, not you and not the coin. Thus concludes uh, a little bit of a survey of the mitzvah of dedicating, donating, sanctifying the firstborn of your animals. Of course, we still will eventually, please God, get to the laws of the firstborn human.